Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. At least 26,000 people are now estimated to have been killed by Israel's war on Gaza, although the real figure is believed to be even higher. On January 22nd, Al Jazeera carried this report on Israel's latest offensive in Khan Yunus. Her daughter is dead, but she cannot let go. You will not take her from me, she says. As Israel's war continues, the injured are brought to overwhelmed hospitals. Gaza is now filled with the displaced. Palestinians have had to move multiple times during this war in an attempt to stay safe. We were forced to leave our home and took shelter in Nasser Hospital, then Al-Aqsa University compound. We ended up here in this tent. We use wood fire to bake bread and cook what we can get our hands on. This winter is fiercely cold. This is not even a proper tent. The constant bombing, the unprecedented destruction and the relentless killing. Palestinians are left to assess the damage inflicted upon them. This is Israel's policy of collective punishment to all the family members of any resistance fighter carrying out an operation. Property is not more precious than a human soul. Compared to Gaza and the Gazans, we are in a better situation. The main legal challenge to Israel's war has come from South Africa at the International Court of Justice. The court published its first response to the South African case on Friday, January 26th, allowing the case to proceed. The president of the court, Joan Donoghue, spoke about the danger facing the civilian population of Gaza. The court considers that the civilian population in the Gaza Strip remains extremely vulnerable. It recalls that the military operation conducted by Israel after 7 October 2023 has resulted inter alia in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries and the destruction of homes, schools, medical facilities, and other vital infrastructure, as well as displacement on a massive scale. The court notes that the operation is ongoing and that the Prime Minister of Israel announced on 18 January 2024 that the war I quote, will take many more long months, end of quote. At present, many Palestinians in the Gaza Strip have no access to the most basic foodstuffs, potable water, electricity, essential medicines, or heating. The World Health Organization has estimated that 15% of the women giving birth in Gaza Strip are likely to experience complications and indicates that maternal and newborn death rates are expected to increase due to the lack of access to medical care. In these circumstances, the court considers that the catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip is at serious risk of deteriorating further before the court renders its final judgment. To talk about the issues arising from the case and what's likely to happen next, I spoke to John Reynolds a professor of law at Maynooth University. He's the author of Empire, Emergency and International Law. John previously co-authored an essay for Jacobin with Nora Erekat about South Africa's submission to the ICJ. John, thanks for joining us. We're speaking now just a few hours after the televised hearing of the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, 
the president reading out their initial response to the case made by South Africa. Obviously, we're going to spend a good bit of time discussing what the court and its judges have said and what the implications are going to be. But could you start by giving people a brief overview of what was the case that was made by South Africa, the grounds that they put forward for invoking the Genocide Convention and what they were looking for the court to do in response? Yeah, no bother. Thanks, Dan. And just to maybe put this in context before we get into the specificities of the legal argument in, in the broader context of what South Africa were asking for, I mean, they were presenting this case against Israel, obviously, under the Genocide Convention. And so it's a challenge to Israeli policy in Gaza, but it's also, in a way, a challenge to international law and institutions themselves. And I think that's just important to situate this and in, in, in thinking about what the implications are and the expectations are after the, the initial ruling today now because international law is you know historically and very much continuing today complicit in many ways in in colonial violence and the imperial world system and the genocide convention has been part of that in a way it comes from a very eurocentric context obviously in the the wake of european fascism and and the second world war and the atrocity of the holocaust it has this narrow construction of, of genocide. It had this whole debate at the time where cultural genocide was was left out of the formulation of the definition of genocide. And so what that means is that in from the point of view of you know the established kind of mainstream consensus and international law itself, the majority of the colonial genocides that have happened over history have never been legally accounted for. It means also that the Holocaust is the paradigmatic example of genocide and there has been this whole mechanism then of of kind of gatekeeping of of what you know what is and what is not genocide and and it's been very limited in terms of legal findings of other genocides and, and Rwanda and Bosnia to a limited extent of the only ones being the only ones that have really been acknowledged by international law so when South Africa as a global south post-colonial post-apartheid state is bringing this claim against Israel for for committing genocide you know that is significant in trying to push back against the established parameters and challenge the reality that you know genocide is has been a world making and nation building mm-hmm. phenomenon all over the world uh, and one that's particularly been relevant in the context of imperial relations and settler colonial projects but that has never been really uh, acknowledged or accounted for legally and so you know what what was really i think quite remarkable about the south african case when they were presenting it at the start and it was this meticulous and compelling presentation of the facts but it was also emphasizing the the context making clear that you know while the case is about what's happened in the last three months uh, things didn't start on the 7th of october or in 2005 with the Gaza disengagement or not even in 1967 with the occupation that this is, you know, they talked about Israel's 75-year apartheid. They talked about placing the acts of genocide explicitly in the, the broader context of Israel's apartheid since ni- 1948 and that the acts of genocide that they're contesting and accusing Israel of here form part of a, a longer continuum. And so it's it's, you know, really putting the question of settler colonial genocide as a long-term process and structure of domination on the table at the at, at the international court of justice and so what they did to try and establish that through through the facts and through the legal arguments was to say in the first place that the acts of genocide under the genocide convention which includes killing of palestinians which includes uh, inflicting severe mental and physical harm on palestinians which includes creating conditions of life that are essentially uh, forcibly destroying the the Palestinians as a group, and also 
through um, uh, the prevention of births and the reproductive violence against Palestinians, that these are all acts of genocide that are intended to destroy the Palestinians as a, as a group in whole or in part. They presented a, this you know, hugely uh, harrowing set of um, realities uh, through the detailed documentation of the UN agencies and other organizations on the ground. And they, and they put all of those facts as uh, alleged acts of genocide in the context of the specific requirement of genocidal intent and to show the intent they produced all of you know this huge series of of statements by israeli officials and leaders that we've all heard uh, over the last number of months about palestinians as human animals about destroying gaza uh, as an entity as about raising it to the ground about uh, inflicting the second nakba or the gaza nakba and take all, all of those statements of intent taken side by side with the mass killings and bombardments the executions of civilians the forcible displacement and the cleansing of the majority of the population from their homes that all of this together cannot be conceivably understood as anything else but a genocidal campaign distinguished members of the court It is a privilege to appear on behalf of the Republic of South Africa in this case of exceptional importance. The South African lawyer Adila Hassim put forward the argument that Israel was guilty of genocidal acts in Gaza. Gaza, which is one of the most densely populated places in the world, is home to approximately 2.3 million Palestinians, almost half of them children. For the past 96 days, Israel has subjected Gaza to what has been described as one of the heaviest conventional bombing campaigns in the history of modern warfare. Palestinians in Gaza are being killed by Israeli weaponry and bombs from air, land, and sea. They are also at immediate risk of death by starvation dehydration and disease as a result of the ongoing siege by Israel, the destruction of Palestinian towns, the insufficient aid being allowed through to the Palestinian population, and the impossibility of distributing this limited aid while bombs fall. This conduct renders essentials to life unobtainable. At this provisional measures stage, as this court has made clear in the Gambia-Myanmar case, it is not necessary for the court to come to a final view on the question of whether Israel's conduct constitutes genocide. It is necessary to establish only whether at least some of the acts alleged are capable of falling within the provisions of the Convention. On analyzing the specific and ongoing genocidal acts complained of, it is clear that at least some, if not all of these acts, fall within the Convention's provisions. Speaking on behalf of South Africa, John Duggard addressed the issue of jurisdiction. South Africa has a long history of close relations with Israel. For this reason, it did not bring the dispute immediately to the attention of the court. It watched with horror as Israel responded to the terrible atrocities committed against its people on 7 of October, 
with an attack on Gaza that resulted in the indiscriminate killing of innocent Palestinian civilians, most of whom were women and children. The South African government repeatedly voiced its concerns in the Security Council and in public statements that Israel's actions had become genocidal. On 10 November, in a formal diplomatic day march, it informed Israel that while it condemned the actions of Hamas, it wanted the International Criminal Court to investigate the leadership of Israel for international crimes, including genocide. As the court will know, the definition of genocide in the Rome Statute repeats that of the Genocide Convention. On 17 October, South Africa referred Israel's Commission of the Crime of Genocide to the International Criminal Court for, quote, vigorous investigation, unquote. In announcing this decision, President Ramaphosa publicly expressed his abhorrence for what is happening right now in Gaza, which is now turned into a concentration camp where genocide is taking place. The Irish lawyer Blina Negrali presented the final statement of South Africa's case. The court has heard of the horrific death toll and of the more than 7,000 Palestinian men, women and children reported missing, presumed dead or dying slow, excruciating deaths trapped under the rubble. Reports of field executions and torture and ill-treatment are mounting, as are images of decomposing bodies of Palestinian men, women and children left unburied where they were killed, some being picked upon by animals. It is becoming ever clearer that huge swathes of Gaza, entire towns, villages, refugee camps, are being wiped from the map. As you have heard, but it bears repeating, according to the World Food Programme, four out of five people in the world in famine or a catastrophic type of hunger are in Gaza right now. Indeed, experts warn that deaths from starvation and disease risk significantly outstripping deaths from bombings. And so that was... Um the case that they presented, they said under the Genocide Convention, we have a dispute with Israel. We're accusing Israel of, of uh, violating the Genocide Convention by committing acts of genocide and also by failing to prevent acts of genocide and to punish incitement to genocide. And so all of those elements are are in uh, the mix there. And on the basis of those arguments, they were asking the International Court of Justice to order provisional measures uh, at, in the, as an emergency sh short term, immediate intervention in the here and now, which the International Court is able to do under its rules to stop and halt the genocidal harm that's happening right now. And then the longer term case will go on um, and, and South Africa will be asking for fuller remedies and reparations. But the important point, I suppose, there and in light of the judgment, the ruling today is that um, there's a two, uh, at least a two phase stage to, to these kind of cases. In terms of the Israeli response to the South African case, obviously that response involved two different elements or two different levels. There was the political response by Israeli government ministers and diplomats pushing back against South Africa. And then there was the more narrowly focused legal response that was put forward by lawyers representing Israel on the day after the South African presentation a fortnight ago. 
What were the main arguments and counter-arguments that Israel sought to put across on those two different levels? Yeah, so the, like you say, the, the political response was, you know, the classic Israeli PR techniques of trying to slander and defame the whole case and the South African presentation as, uh, or the application they'd submitted as a form of anti-Semitism. They upped the ante here to, to, to talk not just about it as anti-Semitism, but as a form of blood libel. And they tried to accuse the South African legal team and the South African state of being a, the legal wing, essentially, of a of a, um, a terroristic organization. And so they, you know, were trying to delegitimize the entire case before it started. There was a question before the initial hearings of, of whether Israel would engage at all or turn up to the court in The Hague. They generally don't engage with, with a lot of other UN bodies and international commissions and so on, and even and especially the International Criminal Court. There was questions over whether they try and, might try and turn it into a little bit of a circus, maybe with bringing people like Alan Dershowitz on board. But in the end, they, they did take it seriously in the sense that there, you know, there's a, a gravitas to the International Court of Justice and the Genocide Convention that meant Israel felt compelled to defend their case. And they uh, they did bring their uh, legal arguments to the court, some of which were not really a serious response to South Africa's application, which were more about deflection and distraction. They devoted a lot of time of their uh, pleadings to preliminary kind of technicalities, saying that there was no dispute at play and, you know, making these quite lame, like, uh, you know, South Africa didn't respond to my text kind of arguments to say, you know, we could have just talked about it. We didn't, we didn't, we don't need to be here in court, but, you know, the, and trying to say that South Africa had no grounds to bring the case, but, but the, the court was never really going to entertain those realistically. They also then, you know, devoted a lot of their time to what happened on, on 7th of October for two reasons, really one to deflect from having to fully respond to South Africa's submissions about everything that's happened in the, hundred or so days since that one day on, on October 7th and also secondly then to try and set up one of their main substantive legal legal defences which was about self-defence that Israel's war on Gaza is a war of, of self-defence and in that context you know any anything goes or they have a much wider remit to use force than they would have in the context of an already ongoing military occupation where they have a responsibility also to protect the population the, the Palestinian population the occupied territory to provide for their social and humanitarian needs and so they were trying to make this you know a, a pure use of force in self-defense just war type of argument in 2004 in the previous international court of justice opinion on israel's wall in the west bank the court has already said that israel has no right to claim self-defense in palestinian territory that it's already occupying so israel is continuing to contest that and you know there's obviously colonial echoes here to that in some ways if we step back from the legal arguments you know it's it's an absurd idea to argue that you know as the colonial power on stolen land you're you're the one acting in self-defense but you know that goes back to you know all the way back to the justifications for the spanish conquests and so on this idea that we will come and discover and conquer and take your territory and if you resist, we we are then entitled to wage a war of, of self defense uh, as a just war, and so that's you know there's a, a classic kind of colonial argument there, but one that at least in its previous cases the international court hasn't accepted, and Israel is continuing to to try and push that. The other one then is uh, is to do with humanitarian law and humanitarian arguments, where Israel is saying that 
because civilian deaths were unfortunate, but this is all collateral damage. This is an exceptional combat situation that we're in against an enemy that's using the uh, urban population as, as human shields. And this is unprecedented in, in the context of um, warfare. And we, we're, just, you know, we're in this completely exceptional situation. Speaking on behalf of Israel, Galit Raguan insisted that Hamas was fully responsible for civilian casualties in Gaza. In every single hospital that the IDF has searched in Gaza, it has found evidence of Hamas military use. Israel is acutely aware that because of Hamas's use of hospitals as shields for its military operations in grave violations of international humanitarian law, patients and staff are at risk. This is why the IDF has reached out to every hospital and offered assistance in relocating patients and staff to safer areas. Hospitals have not been bombed. Rather, the IDF sends soldiers to search and dismantle military infrastructure, reducing damage and disruption. Indeed, the tunnel that sat directly under the main building in Shifa Hospital was exploded without damaging the building above. The IDF then withdrew from the hospital. Yes, damage and harm have occurred as a result of hostilities in hospitals' vicinity, sometimes by IDF fire, sometimes by Hamas, but always as a direct result of Hamas's abhorrent method of warfare. The Washington Post published a detailed report on the Israeli justification for assaulting al-Shifa hospital in late December. It found that the IDF and its spokesman, Daniel Hagari, had failed to back up their claims with evidence. According to the Post, the rooms connected to the tunnel network discovered by IDF troops showed no immediate evidence of military use by Hamas. None of the five hospital buildings identified by Hagari appeared to be connected to the tunnel network, and there is no evidence that the tunnels could be accessed from inside hospital wards. It's in many ways a kind of a classic counterinsurgency situation here. And is even in, in Israel's own previous operations in Gaza, you know, it's it's never gone to the lengths and extent it has in terms of this absolute all all-encompassing genocidal assault. And so it's a, you know, it's arguments that they're the uh, that what it's doing is justified by military necessity and that and that and that it's doing everything it can to to mitigate the humanitarian uh, situation, you know, they, they seemed already on uh, as Israel was making them to be to be quite a stretch. They had no answer to you know the allegations, and accusations about the field executions, the kind of algorithmic genocide and the AI generated targeting of, of large residential buildings and the power targets, as they call them, for for massive shock and awe effect. And you know, with these these huge levels of civilian casualties, as we've seen, they've no answer really for you know how. Uh, the, the accusations that they've been using so-called safe zones really as, as execution zones for, for more concentrated and efficient kind of deployment of, of lethal violence. Um, and so they had, you know, they, there was a lot of uh, deflection, a lot of trying to say we're doing the best we can in difficult circumstances. And when it came to the questions of, of the siege, the destruction of the hospitals and the health infrastructure, it was um, minimal enough what they were what they were able to 
say in response to the damning claims that South Africa presented. When it came down to the question of intent, they tried to argue two things. One, that many of the statements that were being used as evidence of genocidal intent were were made by kind of random fringe figures in Israeli society that had no connection to actual policy or decision making. And the other and the second then that even those who you know, like the prime minister or the foreign minister or those who are the defense minister, those who clearly do have operational decision-making power that their uh, statements, you know, their what, what seemed to be very explicitly and overtly genocidal statements had been misinterpreted or, or, or understood wrongly. And so again, that didn't come across as, as the strongest uh, defense. And particularly when, when um, it came to, you know, this idea that there's genocidal statements happening across the board in society, the Israeli attorney general had very belatedly and, and kind of weekly, just a day or two before the hearings, a uh, hundred days into the genocide had come out with this statement that, you know, genocidal statements may be, may be prosecuted or, or subject to, to legal review. And that was clearly a belated attempt to show to the International Court of Justice that, that Israel was trying to do something about incitement. But it was, you know, by virtue of that, also implicitly acknowledging that there is this extensive and um, systematic uh, discourse that, that is genocidal across across the board in, re- in, in recent months. And so, you know, it didn't, in some ways, some of its own arguments were somewhat self-defeating and some were clearly, you know, designed as, as deflections and distractions that Israel was hoping would, would uh, convince the court. But as we can see from the order that's been issued today, they were uh, not successful in doing that. So on that point, as you say, we've heard the initial response of the ICJ to the arguments and counter-arguments from South Africa and Israel that were presented a fortnight ago. What did they say, first of all? What is the significance of what they said? And if we go down through the individual aspects of what we heard today, was it surprising or unsurprising in any of those particular elements? And what are the implications going to be coming forward from this? Yeah. Okay. So there's a few parts to that. So maybe to, to just on, we can get into the specific elements of what they've ordered and the, the provisional measures that they have indicated. But in terms of whether it's surprising or not, I think for most um, people who've been looking at it closely, this was the most likely scenario. And so what they've essentially said is that um, in broad terms, what, they, what the court has essentially said is that there is plausible grounds to believe that Israel is committing genocide and failing to prevent genocide in Gaza, that there's this urgent and immediate risk of irreparable harm to the Palestinians who are subject to potentially genocidal uh, violence continuing. And so on that level, in terms of like what would be what, what's considered like the plausibility requirement, which is what was needed for an order to be made at this stage, is it plausible that Israel is committing genocide? The court said, yes, it is plausible. And there's a number of consequences and, and orders that measures that flow from that. But basically, South Africa has, has won there. And by overwhelming votes, uh, by a, a majority of, of uh, 15 judges, as opposed to two on, on most of these uh, decisions, 15 in favour and two against. The ruling started off by mentioning the October 7th attack, but it was it was one line and then it moved on to everything that's happened since then. So Israel's attempts to try and make everything about October 7th and to make it all about self-defence wasn't really given much um 
credence by the court. The court didn't say anything about Israel acting in self-defense. It's it, it, it said that some of its claims about humanitarian measures were were clearly insufficient and not reflective of the reality of the situation. It follows a, a certain pattern in these kind of cases. It was a similar set of um, conclusions at this stage in the case against Myanmar for its uh, over its genocide against Rohingya a few years ago, which is an ongoing case. It was similar in the, the Bosnia-Serbia case back in the, the 1990s. Um, the bar for establishing, you know, why, is it plausible that the Genocide Convention applies and that genocide is being perpetrated? The bar is relatively low. And so people were expecting that, you know, given the you know how compelling the case that South Africa had had presented was that that would be you know the, the minimum that the the court would decide but there was you know there, nothing is is a foregone conclusion and you know these institutions like I said historically have you know oftentimes been complicit in um in imperial and colonial violence and sort of nothing was a foregone conclusion and so I think you know overall it is a um a major victory in the big picture for South Africa. There, there's an overall sentiment probably for Palestinians uh, that, that there's a certain amount of, of mixed feelings, uh, which goes to the ambiguity around international law itself and how effective or sufficient this can be in changing material conditions on the ground in the short term in the context of the, the anti-colonial struggle in the longer term. One of the things that... Um, uh, people I think have been disappointed by is that the court didn't there was one of the main provisional measures that South Africa had asked for which was an immediate suspension of all military operations by Israel in in Gaza and the court didn't issue that order it didn't refer to it explicitly it didn't say it was refusing to issue that order for any reason or give any clarification on this it was a relative these uh, provisional measures judgments tend to be relatively short compared to the later judgments we'll get at the, at the merits phase but there's an element of, of uh, spin going on around this now we're only a couple of hours after, after the judgments and so it's still all kind of um uh, being being worked through but you know i think it is important to emphasize on one hand there was a, a an expectation that the most far-reaching and uh, concrete measure that the court could have ordered was um not a ceasefire, that wasn't the language, it wasn't a ceasefire that the South African submission was asking for. The language of ceasefire would imply, you know, that that this is an agreement or or, or, an, or an agreement or an imposition on, on both parties to a conflict. Here, it's not a, obviously, as we know, it's, it's an asymmetrical context. And where we're talking about genocidal war, you know, the most important, so in many ways, the most important measures were about are about stopping the genocide. So the question then is, can you stop the genocide without stopping the military operations? South Africa had argued that you can't and had said that you need to, Israel would need to suspend all military operations in Gaza for for the full protection of, of Palestinians from genocide to be implemented. The court has, in a way that it has done in, in other cases in the past, hasn't ha, has left that to the side and has given a set of other measures where it's saying that you know uh, Israel is obliged to cease any commission of genocide against Palestinians to prevent the destruction of the Palestinians as as a group to prevent any killing causing harm infliction of of deliberate uh, unlivable conditions the measures to do with preventing births all of those acts of genocide Israel has to 
stop committing, has to prevent its military from committing. It has to prevent and punish the incitement to genocide that's been widespread. And then there's a, a it, it has to allow and provide for immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of, of uh, humanitarian assistance and, and basic essential services that are needed in Gaza. And so what the South African legal team and the foreign minister have been saying is that, you, you know, all of those measures taken together means that you can't, you know, there's no way you can continue the military operations in there in anything close to their current form if you're going to seriously be able to implement those measures. So the headline, in a way, is is not as the Wall Street Journal put it out earlier that um, the World Court has rejected demand for Gaza ceasefire. I think was the Wall Street Journal headline. The headline is, pro- you know, in reality, is probably something closer to the World Court orders Israel to halt genocide. But because uh, South Africa had explicitly asked for this suspension of all military operations, and that wasn't explicitly. Granted, you know, there has been some disappointment, understandably, from uh, particularly obviously from Palestinians on, on the ground in Gaza and from uh, from people who have been commenting, you know, that this is, you know, this was this is the minimum ask from the last number of months that the uh, people in, in Gaza have been asking of the international community. The Security Council has failed to do so. The other uh, political organs of the UN are, are um impotent and the international court of justice was uh in some ways the um the last place that they were going to ask for this just before we come on to what the response has been from israel from the us or what the response is likely to be and what implications this has for them i just want to ask on that particular question about the suspension of military operations and not making an explicit order for that Almost two years ago, there was a case brought by Ukraine to the ICJ after the Russian invasion began. It was brought forward within days of the invasion and the initial judgment was handed down within a month of the invasion beginning. And that case also invoked the Genocide Convention, except in a somewhat different way because Ukraine was not accusing Russia of committing genocidal acts, at least not in that particular submission it was asking the court to rule that the Russian government put forward a bogus justification for the invasion on the grounds that it was acting to prevent alleged genocide in eastern Ukraine. And Ukraine did ask the ICJ to make an order in in similar wording for the suspension of military operations. And in that case, by mid-March of 2022, the ICJ did make that explicit order. Now, of course, that raises the point that there's no direct means for the ICJ to enforce its judgments because obviously the Russian military didn't cease and has not yet ceased military operations in Ukraine. But is there a particular rationale why they would have made the order in the one case or and not in the other? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And again, a couple of elements to it. I think as you say, the context it w- was slightly different uh, with, in the Ukraine case there. And, and if some of this goes back to just the kind of jurisdictional quirks of the International Court of Justice. There are other, many other violations of international law, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, the crime of aggression, that in certain contexts could be adjudicated by the International Court of Justice. But in these types of uh, interstate cases, because there's this particular clause in the Genocide Convention, 
the genocide question has been the way to to bring these cases into into the international court and so in the uh like you said in the ukraine case it wasn't a question of um ukraine ac- accusing russia of committing genocide but russia using false uh, premises for its invasion of of ukraine and there the um the court like you said did order russia to suspend all military operations ba- essentially on the basis that this was you know an, an illegal invasion of another state's sovereign territory and had to be halted immediately on that basis and so it was kind of using the, an indirect argument to say that this to, to say that this was you know an unlawful act of aggression that should be that should be reversed here because it's in a context of an ongoing occupation and a longer background the kind of circumstances on the ground are different but i think there is a point that you know clearly south africa asked for this measure because and, and replicated the language of the ukraine case because the court had done so and there was there, there is now a precedent for it finding a way to order essentially a, a withdrawal or a suspension of military operations under the heading of a, of a genocide uh, dispute and so in this case the you know i think we have to be honest that the inter- the court here could have if it wanted to it could have found a way it could have managed to put together a legal argument and south africa you know gave it a lot of the basis to do that with its submissions to put together a legal argument to order israel to suspend its um its operations there were probably other factors going on in terms of the court's own internal discussions and rationale to do with the situation of the hostages inside or the captives inside gaza to do with the you know the, the situation here being that hamas and the palestinian Iron groups as non-state actors have a different status under international law and are not subject to the jurisdiction of the court in the in the way that states are. So the Ukraine Russia scenario is, is slightly different there. But all that being said, you know, like I said, if the court was a more willing to take a more kind of progressive or or, or um, innovative or radical uh, legal interpretation and set of arguments, it, it had the basis to to do so. That wouldn't have been going beyond its remit. Uh, it decided not to do so. There's debate now about, you know, like I said, the South African team saying that they've essentially ordered that without doing so explicitly, that it's it's in there in the language of the of the other measures. But because it's not explicit, it's possible for for Israel and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and whoever else just to to spin it as you know the court was asked to make a, a, a an order for a ceasefire and has and has rejected that even though it hasn't explicitly rejected that but i think you know so the the comparison with ukraine is relevant but the probably in in terms of the legal precedents what what we have here with this ruling today is closer to what the court would have ordered in the, the cases against myanmar and against uh, serbia there was you know a scenario that the court decision the provisional measures to the equivalent decision in in bosnia came in 1993 the uh, court similarly made orders to say that serbia should refrain from committing or conspiring genocide and, and should um uh, punish and prevent genocide from occurring obviously it didn't do so and we had the srebrenica genocide coming after that and so you know i think there again there was a strong moral argument here for the court to go further and to take a more explicit position on on suspending all military operations but i do think it's important to to highlight that that was you know that was one of nine measures that was being requested it wasn't the only one and ultimately the core of the case uh particularly in 
the longer term kind of horizon is about genocide. And so there's, you know, the implications of what the court has said are significant for for Israel and for what you know what it means if Israel does assume presumably as it will uh, and and is on record as saying that it's not you know it's not going to change course or adjust its policies based on uh, anything that it's told to do by the Hague or by the international court and so assuming it doesn't do so it, it will then be you know potentially in in violation of an order from the international court of justice some so a couple of the other things that the court has said as it's um uh, final provisional measures was that Israel is obliged to um, prevent the destruction uh, of any evidence and ensure the preservation of evidence related to, to allegations of genocide, because that will be important for the longer case and the continuing kind of proceedings here and potentially in other courts and situations. And then it's also said that Israel has to re- go back to the court in a month's time and give it a uh, submit a report on all measures taken to give effect to what the court has asked it to do today. So it's going to have to report back on how, what it's doing to stop its military from committing genocide, to punish any incitement to genocide, uh, to what it's doing to make sure that no Palestinian members of the Palestinian group are being killed or being subjected to these uh, acts of genocidal harm and so on. And so, you know, whether Israel does that or not, it, if, if it does submit that report, it will have a job to do if assuming it's it's its operations continue along the track that they've been on till now if you know it, it will be um, a particularly kind of uh, difficult job for it for israel to to spin things uh and as being in compliance with the court judgment and then like you say the the bigger implications in many ways for this ruling are not for for israel itself if if, if we know that israel is ha- is content to treat itself as as a rogue state essentially and and not uh comply with with a ruling from the international court uh the question then is for other states internationally how they're going to how how they're going to respond to it yeah on that point about the implications not just for israel but for other states and above all for israel's allies what we've seen over the last three months from the biden administration is a level of support for israel at war which is almost certainly unprecedented if you look back on anything that's happened in terms of the invasion of Lebanon in 1982 or the more recent attack on Lebanon in 2006 or the previous offensives against Gaza in 2009 and 2014. While they were broadly speaking backed by the US, there's been a more fine-grained level of support from the Biden administration. Obviously, the arms and ammunition that have been sent on a regular basis since October 7th, including moves by Biden to bypass the need for congressional approval, but also the specific endorsements that Biden and his team have given to particular Israeli claims, for example, endorsing the Israeli claims that hospitals were legitimate military targets because According to Biden and others, there was U.S. intelligence to back up the claim that these hospitals were being used as Hamas command and control centers. Biden, of course, notoriously cast doubt on the casualty figures from the Gaza Health Ministry, even though we know that the State Department privately endorsed those figures and even Israeli military intelligence has been working on on the basis that they're accurate. And Various other statements that we could 
side from the Biden administration, right up to the ICJ case itself, which John Kirby, the White House spokesman, quite aggressively dismissed. And he said that it was baseless. Find this uh, submission meritless, counterproductive and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. So now we have this ruling from the ICJ where, first of all, they have said that the case is not lacking in merit. That's the, the broader case, the one that will take quite some time to address, has enough substance behind it that it can be the, the basis of a full hearing over a period of months or, or even years. And we also have these specific actionable points uh, over the next few weeks. And it creates um, an obvious difficulty for the Biden administration, which has been saying in public and in private that we have been doing what we can to ensure that Israel takes care to avoid civilian casualties and brings more humanitarian aid into Gaza and so on. So what is the Biden administration going to be thinking in response to this ruling? How are they likely to react? How is it likely to affect their political decision making over the coming weeks? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's it's been, like you say, uh, quite um, clear that the US is complicit in Israel's genocide. It has been, you know, arguably aiding and abetting that through, through various kind of uh, measures of um, military aid and equipment and weapons transfers, diplomatic protection it's been offering and all the rest. And, you know, we're speaking now a couple of hours after the, the ICJ ruling, but probably in the next few minutes, I think, or certainly around about now that the, the case in California against Biden and Blinken and Austin will have the hearing starting there where Center for Constitutional Rights on behalf of Palestinian uh, organizations and uh, individuals are arguing that um, the US officials are aiding and abetting Israel's genocide and are uh, failing their duty to prevent the genocide. And there's a couple of important things there. One is is that um, obviously now with the ICJ saying there's a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide, the whole argument that the US administration would have had in that case to say this is, you know, as you say, the, the arguments that make that this is absurd or there's, there's no basis to say that this can be characterized as genocide. You know, now there is an authoritative statement from from the world court to to counter that. And so that will obviously be part of the arguments that uh, are put forward by the lawyers in that case and makes it harder to to rebut. You know, and I think that's that's a broader point that goes to a lot of the Western countries. When South Africa filed the case initially, they tried to again to undermine it to say that it was you know they don't accept the premise of this case that it's flimsy or it's not uh, a serious submission and so on. And so that's been you know very clearly and robustly debunked by the by the, the the judges of the court themselves. And so it will be much harder in general for the Western states to to stick to this line that you know this is just Israel's right to self defense and it's not doing anything um overtly wrong there was a you know already there has already been a statement from the um european commission uh, or one of the, at least one of the representatives of the european commission noting that the judgment the ruling has come out uh, noting that the international court of justice is the principal judicial organ of the un and its uh, uh, orders are binding 
and parties must comply with them and the European Union uh, expects the full immediate and effective implementation right so that's you know um, the line from from the European Union which will make it again more difficult for member states like Germany who've been so gung-ho in their defense of Israel over the course of the last few months and including in the context of this case saying that they you know that they're going to intervene in support of Israel in the case you know uh, now that we have this order and that it is on record from the the highest court in the UN system that Israel is is plausibly committing genocide that has this whole range then of implications for third state responsibility for any interactions with Israel if you're selling weapons to Israel if you're engaging in diplomatic protection or or economic um and trade deals with Israel all of that now is is on the table and I think will be a big site of struggle in terms of social movement activism and civil society organizing and so on that you know states can't engage with Israel in in the same way as they have been doing in the wake of this this ruling the last question I want to ask you and it does speak to that issue about third parties as well one of the points that was granted by the ICJ today was that South Africa did have a legitimate interest in what was happening in Gaza and that it was legitimate for South Africa to pursue this route through the ICJ, that it had exhausted other possible ways of bringing this concern to the attention of the Israeli government and hadn't received satisfaction on that front. So now that we know that the case is proceeding to the next stage, there has already been quite a lot of talk about various third party governments intervening on one side of the case or the other and others coming under pressure to do so. So first of all, now that the case is going ahead, are we likely to see more of those interventions and what impact, if any, are they likely to have on on what happens over the long run? Yeah, so I think that then speaks to again, just going back to the to what I was saying about the start about South Africa and you really trying to bring forward an argument here that's rupturing some of the classic kind of gatekeeping norms around you know who can claim genocide, who can genocide be claimed against, and we are you know in the statements and the responses since South Africa filed the case we've seen to a large extent some of the you know the global north south lines being drawn again you have some of the um western countries particularly uh, germany coming out very strongly on the same day that israel defended uh, or presented its defense in the hague a couple of weeks ago germany announced that it was going to intervene in support of uh, israel in, in this case whereas you have on the other side the likes of Jordan and uh, Bangladesh certainly are two so far that have said that they that they will explicitly and formally intervene in the case against Israel, and you have a, a what will likely have then is is, is other states uh, committing to do so. Normally, the, the process is that you would have um, an invitation from the court to submit that what are called declaration of interventions by other states that are interest that have an interest or something to add to the case that will come over the probably over the next couple of months and states will then be be able to um to make their submissions there's nothing formally stopping from states from from intervening earlier and it has you know in in the ukraine russia case there was this uh, essentially a policy by the western european states of, of a kind of a mass interventions where, where 32 or 33 states all intervened in support of ukraine's case which is in, in a way that you know hadn't been done on mass like that before and so that's kind of set the the precedent the court you know is always 
and has always been politicized but in in some ways that's you know even more on the horizon now and part of the discourse now because of the uh, scenario that the russian invasion of ukraine threw up on, on so many levels it's created now you know this idea that we as the global south or we as the third world are going to use these institutions call for sanctions intervene in icj cases in the way that um that the west did in um again against russia and part of it is about you know holding a, a mirror up to to some of the hypocrisy of the western states part of it is about some kind of return to you know the more radical agitation of the of the 1950s 60s and 70s where the third world was using the un mechanisms and bodies and and uh, institutions like the international court in you know in in more kind of explicitly active ways to to try and agitate for a different world order and we're we're maybe seeing a return to that to a certain extent now we saw and heard the the response from Namibia to the German announcement that it, it was going to intervene in support of Israel in the case and Namibia essentially saying you know who are you to be as Germany to be deciding and lecturing anyone about genocide and saying that South Africa has no right to bring this case or that this case should be thrown out. You have uh, clearly failed to learn the lessons from your own history. And it was a very explicit kind of call out in reference to the German genocides in uh, in Namibia against the um, Naman Herero people in the early 20th century. And so, you know, a lot of those political fault lines are are coming to the surface again. And so what will, and, and you know, if, you, if we look at, you know, even Bangladesh, who've announced they're going to intervene uh, in the case and they, you know, there is a particular constitutional provision in the Bangladeshi constitution that basically says the state has the, has an obligation as, as a matter of foreign policy to um, support anti-colonial and anti-racist uh, struggles and peoples who are struggling against oppression and so it's in that kind of spirit that we might see a, a big wave potentially of of third world and global south countries intervening potentially in the case there's obviously massive interest in global geopolitical circles in this case there is you know ultimately i think some serious questions for the Palestinian kind of anti-colonial movement and, and tradition for for South Africa and its um, movements as well about you know how much faith should be put in an institution like the International Court of Justice. But at this point, you know the the case is there; it's going ahead, and probably many countries are going to want to intervene. And this is going to be then a process of various rounds of proceedings over over the coming years. So the urgent and immediate kind of measures now are about halting the genocide and and um stopping the the harm uh, from before it gets any worse we you know f- obviously the most urgent and immediate thing is the reality of of the slaughter and starvations of of palestinians that are going on every day in gaza and then the longer term issue about you know whether this is genocide what reparations should be should be paid and what remedies should be made down the track but that could be you know a number of years away before the court gets to that stage and the opening up now of the reality from the court that this is plausibly a case of genocide that this is essentially confirming what the mass mobilizations of popular movements around the world have been saying for for the last number of months in the demonstrations and and the organizing around the idea of stop the genocide the movements around divestment and sanctions to do specifically with upholding the genocide convention even the likes of the you know the actions by the houthis and what they've been saying is you know they're their motivations are around stopping the genocide in Gaza. All of that now is um, has this 
additional register and angle, which is that the court has essentially confirmed that there's a plausible case that Israel's committing genocide. That is significant. It's, I, do, I do think it's also just important to emphasize and, and highlight though that that's not and shouldn't be the final word on on genocide. Genocide has been perpetrated and and taken place for in many places and spaces before the Genocide Convention was ever written and adopted. And there are strong uh, claims and and evidence of of genocides that have been perpetrated where where there hasn't been formal legal recognition of them. And so, you know, it, it is important that the broader kind of um, political movements and social movements around this are not pushed out of the picture by the legal analysis and the legal expertise that will be focused on on this case and what it says over the years to come. Many thanks to John Reynolds for that discussion of the ICJ case. You can also read his article about the case, co-authored with Nura Erekat, on the Jacobin website. <laughs>